When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Marina Sirtis is a woman with both feet planted firmly on the ground. Over the years, she's played many kinds of roles, but she is especially remembered for her portrayal of Deanna Troy on Star Trek TNG. By the time this podcast airs, Marina will be living near London and walking her dogs by the riverbank. It's hard to think of her so far from Los Angeles, but as you will hear in our conversation, she has good reasons for returning to her homeland. There may be a few sound glitches during our conversation. We were recording remotely and Wi-Fi was spotty, but the conversation was lively. Hi, Marina. <laughs> Hi. Hello, Daisy. I'm so glad that we finally are able to do this after uh, technical, technical problems. But here we are. And I love seeing you. And so, all right, here we go. You were born in Hackney, grew up in Herringay and went to school in Tottenham. Tottenham yeah. Spurs, I know. Now, Herringay is really pretty, though, isn't it? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, hang on. I've got to explain. Herringay is confusing because I grew up in Herringay, in the borough of Herringay. So I was in the Herringay that was spelled H-A-R-R-I-N-G-A-Y. And the okay is H-A-R-I-N-G-E-Y. Um, the the Harringay, the place, not pretty. Um, it's a working class, um, terraced houses, you know, um, street upon street of terraced houses, um, no great shops. We have to go to Wood Green to the shopping city to get the shops. I mean, you know, it's a working class neighborhood. Um, it's gone, it's gotten a bit gentrified because all of London's got gentrified, but um right. it, it's not it's it, it was not a desirable place to live when I lived there, let's put it that way. It might have changed in the 30 years since I've been gone. When I was researching uh, all of the places around there, they were talking and I was looking at the difference of the Greek Cypriot and then the Turkish Greeks who were coming. And that there were a lot of Turkish that even the the Greek Cypriots were in a section where there were a lot of Turkish stores like grocery stores and stuff. Yeah, well, they moved in when the Greeks moved out. The Greeks, the Greek Cypriots, most of the Greeks in England, in London, are Greek Cypriots. They've come from Cyprus because they're British citizens because Cyprus used to be part of the British Empire. So even right. if you were born in Cyprus, um, you had a British passport. My dad had a British passport because his parents were Cypriot. He'd never set foot in England, but he had a British passport because he was British. So, um, it, you know, it's kind of complicated. But um, the Greeks, when they start to make money, start moving north on the Piccadilly line. They go from, you know, between Manor House and Wood Green, then they go up to Cockfosters where the posh people live. So as they make money, they move further north. And uh, now Haringey is pretty much Turkish. In fact, I was shooting a movie there a few years ago on the high street, and a guy came out of the store and started talking to me in Turkish. And I got most offended. Now, excuse me, I'm Greek. And he didn't expect to see many Greeks in Haringey because most of them have gone. What was, I want to talk about, you know, growing up and when you were little. So, what was your favorite thing that you did with your father when you were little? Jesus, my dad. Oh, gosh. 
my dad, I hardly just saw my dad. My dad was gone in the morning before we got up to work and he came home after we'd gone to bed. Um, wow. We hardly ever saw him. Um, my dad, In fact, when my dad passed, my brother said, you know, Mina, I didn't really know him. I mean, he never wow. took me to the park to play ball, you know. I mean, when I was little, because he worked in a factory and so he worked kind of regular hours, um, he would take me to the park. Um, that was kind of what we did. Um, what was his job? He was a tailor. Well, he was a tailor. Oh, that's right. So um, after the fact, he was made redundant. The factory, uh, the, they, he got fired. And so he decided that he would um, work himself um, for himself. And so then he got work from Savile Row. In fact, every jacket that Roger Moore wore when he was James Bond, my dad made. That's so cool. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. And actually, he was so good at his job that he won two gold medals at the Taylor and Cutter exhibition in London at Olympia. Um, he was an wow. artist. He really was. I know. He was. Did, did he make you close? He did. He made me for my 21st birthday. He made me a pinst- grey pinstripe 40s um, pencil skirt, wide-shouldered suit. Do you still have it? I do. And it still fits. Oh, my God. I want to see that. Oh, my God. You've got to wear that sometime. I will. I will wear it once. Now that I can fit in it again. It was for your birthday? For my 21st birthday. So tell me, all right, just this is, I want to go back later to being little, but right now, since we're on the 21st birthday. So tell me what that night was. Oh, Jesus. Okay. He gives you the outfit and then what's the, what's the whole day? No, the outfit was made before because I had to have fittings, you know, so it would fit perfect. Oh, okay. No, my 21st birthday was a bit of a, it was a bit of a comedy of errors because I had been dating this guy. I'm not going to mention any names because he was married at the time, but I was <laughs> dating this guy. <laughs> well, I had dated, I had dated this guy and I was working at the Mermaid Theatre. And because me and a bunch of my school friends all had birthdays in, in March, we decided that we would have a joint 21st birthday party at a pub. Uh, just before I was leaving to go to the pub for my own birthday, I got a call from the Mermaid Theatre that this person, this fella, had showed up. So I, I went to the Mermaid Theatre instead of going to my birthday party. So I was late for my birthday party by about four hours <laughs> because I was treating this fella. Okay, that was my birthday. Oh, wow. 21st birthday. A friend made me a dress. It was white satin and looked like a bride's dress. But um, she did it because I got, it was the Harvard Hasty Pudding Club and it was the night of opening was on my 21st birthday. And because I was the only woman involved with the whole show, I got to have, sit next to the man of the year for dinner. Oh, cool. And that man was Robert Redford. Robert Redford. Oh, get out. And I died and went to heaven. I mean, it was like, I was shaking. I was so, because I was totally in love with him. It was Butch Cassidy in the Sundance yeah, Kid time. Yeah. He was so amazing. He was so stunning. Was this your 21st in March or in August? Sorry, I had to put that in. <laughs> in March, in March, in March. <laughs> so in March. I know, I was so stupid. Okay. So who did you want to be like when you grew up? Like, go, is, think little, not like, you know, we're not teenagers yet. What, what, who did you want to be like when you grew up? Um, well, uh, a lot of my friends tell me that I was born middle-aged. Um, <laughs> so, uh, because I was, I'm all, so uh, the people that I looked up to were grown-ups because, I mean, the prop, I mean, I say that it was because my parents were 
couldn't read and write English. I mean, my dad went to night school for a bit to learn how to read English. Um, but my parents couldn't read and write English. And so I, I paid the bills. I wrote the checks. Um, when I was in what we call junior school and infant school, they would take me out of class from the age of five. They would take me out of class to go and be the interpreter when Greek women were bringing their children to the school to register them in school. So from a very early age, I was given a lot of responsibility. And, wow. it, you know, I didn't see it as that at all, I have to be honest. But the people that I looked up to, I mean, I lived in the TV. I mean, I literally lived in the TV. And I looked up to actors. I always did. I mean, I was uh, besotted with um, Greta Garbo and Betty Davis. Um, they were my two absolute, still right. are actually, uh, absolute idols. Uh, there we completely agree because they were two unbelievable actors and I really, really looked up to them myself. That's so amazing, though, that you had that kind of responsibility, but it also must have made you feel kind of special and important. Yeah. What did you and your brother? So, OK, your parents are both working like my parents. Um, obviously, my mother had come from a Lithuanian speaking family and I, uh, my grandmother could not. She could not speak English, really. I mean, a little bit finally, but not really. And she couldn't read. Um, and she had trouble even reading Lithuanian, I think. Uh, and my, my grandfather worked in a factory, made, you know, uh, but they had a they had a pretty decent life because back then, if you had a you know, good job, you had some security and stuff. And they lived in a, a pretty decent house. I mean, they didn't start there, but they uh, it was a factory town and everybody. I even look at where, you know, where Jack lives now in Kentucky, in Louisville, there were all these little houses that were affordable first homes for people. They're tiny, but they're really sweet, you know. Yeah. You could see living in there and having a family if you had a, a factory job. Did your parents ever go out? Like, um, like, did you ever have babysitters or were you always the babysitter of your brother? No, no, no. My parents didn't go out. And this was, I mean, I don't know what it was like in America, but back in the day, in well, in the Greek community anyway, when your parents went out, you went with them. You know, and if they right, went to visit right. friends, you went with them and you sat there and you and you shut up. I mean, it was like it was like, wow. you know, children should be seen and not heard unless they had right. kids and then we could go and play. Right. But basically, I mean, right. it was like the most boring thing in the world. It would be like, oh, geez, I've got to go and sit with these grown ups now for three hours, you know. But um, did, did your parents ever go and like just go see a movie together? Like, no. did they ever have time? No. They never had a date. My parents never had a date, as far as I know. When did your mother and dad get married? Gacy, they had an arranged marriage. So it's a whole different thing. It's a whole different thing. You know, when you have an arranged marriage, it's not the same as like, you know, dating and falling in love with someone. It's like you marry this guy right. or you're going into a convent. Right. You know, that was the choice. So, so what, how old was your mother when she got married? 24, which was very old for a Greek girl, you see. Yeah. And how old was your dad? Was he the same no, he was 30. Okay. He was 30 when they got married. Yeah. He was six years older. He adored my mum. For my dad, it was love at first sight when he saw my mum. But my mum didn't, uh, sadly, didn't realise how much she loved my dad until he popped his clogs and he was gone. Mm. Mm. Which happens, I think, with a lot of arranged marriages, you know. I think it happens a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it was also a very tough life. I mean, you're working really hard and you don't have, you know, you're, you're cooking all day. I mean, what was the favorite thing? Your mother must have taught you how to cook. She did. What were the things when she would let you go in the kitchen? What are your favorite things that your mother made? Okay. So that was interesting that because my mother cooked Greek food, obviously, right? I, when I cooked, I cooked English food for my brother and me. <laughs> So I, you know, she would make the Greek food, which I make now, obviously. But when I was cooking, I wanted to make shepherd's pie or steak and kidney pudding or roast beef and Yorkshire pudding or, you know, all the English things that we didn't have because we had this delicious Greek food. And then when my brother started playing sports and he was always looking, you know, to keep fit, the Greek food he thought was too rich and too fattening. Um, And also there's a lot of sauce that you have to mop up with bread, you know, so it goes a bit too far. So I would cook English food for my brother because it was, um, you know, like a a chop or a steak and some salad and some fries or, you know, what have you. In fact, my Greek food, I don't need recipes for because it's all in my head. You know, it's only other recipes that I need a recipe book for. Well, when you would go out like in the family to their friends, obviously you must have all brought dishes or did you all have food that you ate? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. I tell you, I'll give you an example. My first ever job in the theatre and um, my parents would come on a Sunday because then they wouldn't have to see me act because it was dark on a Sunday. <laughs> the theatres are dark on Sundays in, in England, not Monday. Come on Sunday. Um, so they like they were living in like this bubble where they pretended I wasn't an actress, right? Here's what I don't understand. Okay. I've shared with you that I am a major lover of Greek drama and I've directed a lot of Greek plays. I love it as literature. And it seems to me that some of the most remarkable archaeological things in the world are some of the Greek theaters that still exist. Why do you think your parents did not think it was something to, uh, to aspire to really? Well, because they don't, they don't look at it as, as like, well, we invented theatre, so I should, you know, I should support my daughter to be an actress. Because by the time I decided to be an actress, you know, in the in the early seventies, well, actually, I decided to be an actress when I was three. But you know, when I actually started doing it in the in the mid seventies, um, what when I said to my mum, you know, when I was a kid, I want to be an actress. What she heard was, Mum, I want to be a prostitute. That was what actresses were. They were loose women with no morals, you see. The complete opposite of mine, because for mine, it was like, we want you to be Greta Garbo and Betty Davis. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like they did not think of it as the prostitute. They thought of it as the way to actually have success, I think. But right. not for my brother. For my brother, it was like, you go to law school, you go to Harvard, you do this, you know. Well, you've got to remember, Gatesy, that in England, you don't earn a lot of money acting. You know, that's why we all come to America, right? Right. Right. So in England, when you, when you hear your kids say, I want to be an actor, all you can see that in their future is poverty, right? <laughs> because there are very few actors in England who make a lot of money. When was, when was the first time that you made the trip to Greece and what, what were your feelings? Can you like kind of... Tell me, when you first saw the Aegean Sea and when you first saw how beautiful it was there, do you remember how old were you and, and, and how did it make you feel? Well, when I was 11, that was after that my parents saved up for 11 years to afford to go to Greece for a month in the summer. And um, my mum's house, we were nowhere near the sea, first of all. We were in a, we were in a little suburb of Athens 
we didn't, there wasn't, the road wasn't even paved. It was a dirt road. Um, it was like, I remember when we used to do religious, religious instruction in school, and the first thing we did was the house that Jesus lived in. We had to draw the house that Jesus lived in. Well, that was exactly like my grandma. My grandma's house was a square box, and um, it had running water, but it didn't have a shower. We shout, there was a garden hose in, in the yard, and that was how we washed when I first went. And we didn't have a fridge. We had an, literally an ice box where the ice person, the ice, the ice man came by every couple of days with blocks of ice that we put in, in the fridge. I mean, it was very, very, very um, primitive. Yeah. Well, that's, you know. listen, that's even the way it was. You know, when I bought my place in France, uh, Marina, there was no plumbing in the house. There were uh, chamber pots. Right. People didn't have, you know, there were no showers. You didn't shower. You just had a basin and you washed and I, all this stuff was still there. There were people who were still doing that in the village. Yeah. You got to at least see the Acropolis, even if you were in the airplane, right? You, I mean, that's pretty. Yeah, flew over it. Flew over the Acropolis. Yeah. We used to, we used to because we did live quite far from the beach, um, the church, uh, the church would organize coach trips on a Sunday. And so we'd get on the bus, you know, on the coach and go to the seaside. Um, so, yes, I did get to see the sea. And, yes, once you've seen that turquoise sea in Greece, it's like it, the, nowhere in the world is the sea that color. It's turquoise. It's absolutely spectacular. That is on my bucket list of what I want to do. So much literature that I love comes from um, Greece. And I, I I don't know. I just, I really want to visit and see how beautiful it is and visit the places. We should go together, Gatesy. I would love it, honey. We should go together. We can go to the Delphic Oracle and then you and I can sort of say, okay, what's going to happen next to us? <laughs> you know, we can find out. <laughs> um, I love it. In England, so the Greek part of England that you were in, were the boys treated the way the Armenians treat the boys versus girls here? Were the boys definitely, like, treated better? Yeah, well, they're treated different. I mean, basically, I was not allowed out. I came home from school. I was not allowed out the house. Literally, that was it. Um, my brother could go. I mean, once my brother, you know, was older, he could go out. The reason I think I became so obsessed with football, you know, soccer in America, um, was because it was the only place my parents would let me go because they thought, well, how, how much trouble can she get into surrounded by 35,000 people? Go back to your, your primary school. So what, what was your favorite subject or subjects in primary school? Um, I, I, well, history was my favorite subject. Um, I love history. I love historical novels. I, you know, I love novels that take you like over generations of a family and you learn history through a story, you know, um, like that massive book, Russia. Um, you learn all about Russian history through this novel. And that's my favorite thing. Um, you know, entertain, yeah. entertainment history. Um, and English. I loved English as well. Um, I was also good at French rubbish at all the sciences. So, but when did you start that? I mean, what did you do when you were like six and seven and eight and nine? What subjects did you like history then? I was reading then. I was a voracious reader. But when, when you're, you know, from the, up until seven, when I was on my own at home, um, if I wasn't, you know, telly, I mean, you've got to remember the TV in England at that time, we had two channels and it turned off at a certain time and it didn't come on till a certain time. It was whole black spaces. So in those empty spaces of TV, I would read. And I remember reading one of my favorite books, The Water Babies, 
when I was six or seven. And I look at it now mm. and it's a proper book with small writing. And I thought, oh, I was mm. a good reader, you know. Mm, yeah, you, I'm sure you were because you still read so much now. Were you ever a teacher's pet in your early years at school? I was I was the teacher's pet because I was feisty. Uh, one partic- one teacher that I had for two years, one form teacher that I had for two years. I, I was you know I was bad, but I was fu- I, but I was smart and funny. So I got away with murder. In fact, I'm so ashamed. I, I they used to sit us in the class in the order that we took the exams and what what position we were in the class. So I came second one year, and Roy Floodgate. I don't know if he's still out there came first and he would wear he was a boy scout and on you know public holidays and St George's Day and stuff like that he'd wear his little boy scout uniform and I would sharpen up my pencils and stick them in his leg and he would go Mr Lunny sir sir Marina's sticking pencils in my leg and Mr Lunny would say oh man up stop here she's a little girl just stop you know so anyway so, if, Roy, if you're out there, I'm sorry I gave you lead poisoning, honey. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. <laughs> so, so who who was the um, person who controlled, uh, like who was the boss in your house? Was it your dad or your mom? My mom. My mom. Greek, Greek, the, the Ingr- Greek society is, is, is very similar to, you know, um, Italian, French. The men think they're in charge, but the women are in charge. It's a very matriarchal society. Ancient Greece had its was different in, in so many ways. The only way a woman could get power was through her son, uh, it, not not even so much her husband. But I agree, it's like that in uh, several matriarchal countries where actually the woman controls the stuff in the house. But but you can't just go out and do whatever you want too. You don't have no. equality in the the world. I want to say of my mother's generation. I mean, not my generation. But, you know, my mother was, you know, they were like, well, you know, that's a man's job and, you know, that's uh, that women should be like this and men should be like that. And it was very, very Victorian. Um, but that was the way they were raised, you know. They were raised with a sense of duty, Gatesy. Duty was the number one thing for my mother. Duty to her family, duty to her parents. And then she got me. And she got this thing that she didn't understand because I said, I don't care about duty. This is my life and I'm going to live it my way. And you just have to, you know, you have to accept it. And of course, I was speaking Chinese to my mom. She didn't understand that at all because she had married a man parents told her to. My mother, I think, always grew up wanting to go into business and to do things and to achieve things, even though no one, women weren't really doing much of that at the time. I think it was her father who had really pushed education on them a lot. And education seemed to be a huge thing to my mom because she certainly um, was very demanding about it with my brother and me. She got married so young and she, I mean, she fell super in love with my dad, but I think she always 
regretted that she didn't have time on her own and that it was so much harder to find a job. And so she really didn't want me to do that. Different times, different times. Yeah. Different times, guys. What was your favorite present that you got as a child? Christmas present? Oh, see, I don't remember a favorite Christmas present, but what I do remember is when my dad was made redundant from the factory and it was just before Christmas. And I wanted a paint by numbers set. That's what I wanted. And I remember my dad sitting me down in tears and telling me that I couldn't have it. We couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford it. Oh, that's so hard. That that's really tough. It's brutal. Why do people do that? You know, right before Christmas. But I guess that's what happens to people all the time. Look how many people are yeah. out of work now. I know, for no fault of their own. Yeah, but good for him because then he went and he started his own business. How long did it take him to get that going? Uh, well, he had. To, well, basically, as I said, he took his work down to Savile Row and went into all the different tailoring establishments and showed them. Who- was brilliant so he got work from them and he rented a space but but it was it a long process no no he'd got he, he found I mean basically you know he had to scrimp and borrow to get this deposit on this workshop that he found but the workshop gates you're gonna die was above Lord John's in Carnaby Street no <laughs> I spent my youth in Carnaby Street when it was the center of the universe. Oh my God, you lucky duck. I know. I would lean. I was 11. I was 11 when he first went there. And um, I would lean out of the, I'd literally, you know, when I was 11, they'd let me go visit him on my own. So I'd get on the bus and I'd go on the tube and I'd go to Carnaby Street and I'd lean out of my dad's window, workshop window, and all all that 60s was happening below me. And the, the, the soundtrack was the mamas and the papas. That was my youth, Carnaby Street. Uh, it was brilliant. Uh, I remember reading, you know, voraciously every magazine I could get that would give me photos of Carnaby Street and everything. And I, I met, a, there was a girl who I met in college who had gone to Bebas and she had all these clothes Beba. that I just loved. Oh, I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. So, so, uh, which was, so at that time when you're 11, are, are you into the Beatles or what are you into? Yeah. Beatles, yeah. monkeys, 11, monkeys. Yeah. Um, yeah. when I was 11, it was 1966. So the Beatles were kind of, you know, getting towards the 67, they broke up, didn't they? I was heavily into the monkeys and my dad took me to see them at Wembley Arena and I screamed, I love you, Davy, through the whole concert. And then I cried on the tube all the way home. And my dad, God bless him, <laughs> let me get on with it. He didn't say anything. He didn't say, oh, don't be silly. He was just like, you know, okay, love, okay, you know. And oh, I so met sweet. them. I met them. And when I met them, I met Davy Jones. And I was just about, actually, it was horrible because I met him about three months before he died unexpectedly and suddenly. Oh. And I met him and I met Peter Talk and I met Mickey Dolenz. But they were my, it was so weird to be like obsessed with the monkeys when I was 11 and then to meet them as an adult and they flipping were hitting on me. <laughs> well, of course. Now, so um, <laughs> where did you, 
Where did you and your girlfriend, like who was your best friend? Again, not yet quite high school, but what, did you have a grade school girlfriend? School was different back then. We went to infants from four and a half, five till seven. Then from seven till 11, we went to juniors. And then from 11 to 18, 16 or eight. Actually, when I went to school, you could leave school at 15. Now British is like the American system and they have a middle school and a, you know, and a high school. We didn't have that. When I was in junior school, um, my best, one of my best friends was a girl called Anne Smith and we ended up going to the same high school. So that was good because at least I knew someone there. Um, because in those days you had to pass an 11, what they called the 11 plus to go to a good school. Um, which I did. Um, otherwise, you went to a secondary modern where they basically taught you a trade, you know, and kicked you out. Um, but I went to a grammar school, which, you know, you did exams and hopefully. When you were like high school age, when did you start wearing lipstick? And did your mother wear makeup in ever? My mother wore lipstick. My mother had red lipstick, you know. You know, we, we always, I don't know about your house, but our telephone was in the hallway where there was a phone yeah. stand and a mirror, right? You had to go into the hall. And my mum had her red lipstick there by the mirror, which she would put on before she stepped out the door. That was the only lipstick, she, that was the only makeup she wore, red lipstick. Um, I didn't really start wearing makeup until I was about 14 or 15. Um, they didn't, they wouldn't let me, first of all. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and then, and then I kind of started sneaking it, but... Um, the thing in those days was how it wasn't about the makeup. It was about how short you could wear your skirt. Right. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Remember that? We used to roll up our school skirts, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We weren't allowed to even roll them up because I went to an all girls high school. So and did I. Uh, I mean, it was pretty strict about that. And nobody seemed to wear makeup in my memory at all. Only if you were going to a dance and you barely had anything. Um, yeah. When were you ever allowed to go with friends to a pub, for example? Never. <laughs> Not that I didn't go, okay. but I wasn't allowed to go. But I went, obviously. <laughs> so listen, in England, we don't have photo ID. Well, we didn't back then. We do now. We didn't have photo ID back then. I started going in pubs when I was 14. Because when I was 14, I looked like I was in my early 20s. Okay, okay. Yeah. So that must have been really cool and fun. And what was your favorite pub? Like, like, did you go with girls or was it only if a guy? No, no, it was called the British Queen in Tottenham. And that's where we went after the match. And then oh. there was the Beehive where we went before the match. And they're both in Tottenham. I love it. And I think they're still there. The Beehive, I think, is still there. And what, what would you have when you would go there? Would you have a beer? Would you have a pint? What, what no, would you have? No, I hate beer. I'd have what they call a tarts drink in England. I'd have port <laughs> and lemonade. I love it. I love it. Um, now it's time to talk soccer. Okay. Oh, so right. You, you, so I'm, first of all, I am really sorry that the Spurs just lost the game to Liverpool. Oh, I'm amazed you know that, Gatesy, but thank you. I'll take those commiserations. I know it was that that's what was brutal. I mean, really, I actually feel so badly for Kane because holy cow, I have been I've been researching for this podcast, but I have been watching Jesus. all of his strikes. Holy cow. He's good. He's amazing, isn't he? Yeah, he's amazing. Oh, my God. But I do not understand how someone can 
get that ball in that back corner over the head of the, I mean, it's just, it's so brilliant I, I how know. he would do it. I know. It's incredible. I know. It's amazing. Do I you, mean, I never played, I never played football because girls didn't play football in England until. Did you play sports at all? Field hockey. Field hockey. Me too. Um, Chopper Certis. When we got into the upper six of my school, we used to have a charity hockey match with the local boys school. And <laughs> the, when we played, when our year played the boys, the boys were like, you are the dirtiest team we've played all year. <laughs> if they were running away with the ball, we'd just hook our hockey sticks around their ankles and trip them over. Or if, or if they were running away and we couldn't get near them because they were faster than us, we'd go, Elaine, Elaine, show them your boobs. Slow them down. Lift your shirt up, show them your boobs. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It is a beautiful game. I actually did like field hockey. I was defense, but my problem was is that I was always at dancing school and stuff. I mean, there was like too many activities, theater school, dancing school. Yeah. Um, but I do think that soccer, foot, football is really, it's a beautiful game. It is. And I love, and the World Cup is like the one, I would say that and basketball are my two games that I really love. And, and I do love watching them. When did you first meet uh, Lois Burwell? who is Steven's, for those who don't know, that's Steven Spielberg's brilliant makeup designer. When, did you meet her at drama school? No, I met Lois, who is one of my, I would say she she's one of my best, 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 best friends in the world. Um, right. I, did I ever tell you what, I, did I ever tell you what my sister-in-law said? <laughs> when she met Lois, she said, oh, she's extraordinary. I think she's the most extraordinary woman I've ever met. Pause. Think that you're friends. <laughs> oh, come on, stop it. She did. That's what my sister in law said. Anyway, I met Lois and she meant it. She didn't mean it badly, but you know, it came out wrong. Um, so I met Lois when I was 23 and she was 21. And she had just quit the Royal Ballet. She was at the Royal, she went to the Royal Ballet School, and then when she went to, into the company, and she quit to become a makeup artist. Wait, wait, wait. Stop, stop. She was in the Royal Ballet? Yeah. She was a dancer? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That is not easy. No, she did. No, she was at the Royal Ballet School wow. and she went into company. And she quit um, to become a makeup wow. artist. And I did ask her why she'd quit because I, I would have loved to have been a ballerina, you know. The first picture I remember of me is me at three standing in an arabesque. But um, she said two reasons. She, one, she was sick of being hungry all the time. And two, she was sick of being in pain all the time. Yeah, well, that's true, sadly. Because that's what it is. I mean, that's right. I worked at Pineapple in London and saw those dancers coming in. I mean, they in those days, I don't know what it's like now. You know, I'm talking 30 years ago. But those dancers lived on celery, coffee and cigarettes. I mean, that was it. No, I know. But anyway, so anyway, Lois and I met because I got cast to be in a student film at the National Film School, and she was my makeup artist. And we wow. worked for our bus fare, five pounds a week. That was our salary. And when she took her test to go into the union in England, I was her model. So she aged. She had to do an aging makeup and she had to do a glamour makeup and she did it on me and she got into the union. That's so cool. And now she's the first vice president of the Academy and she's in charge of the Oscars and I am so bloody proud of her. I am bursting. Yeah, I don't blame you. And she's got an Academy Award and a bunch of BAFTAs. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's pretty cool. So I wanted to go now going another direction. So did you have to do horrible, you know, jobs that you hated uh, to make just an, enough money to pay rent, to pay for food, stuff like that? I was I was really lucky in as much. I did the horrible jobs when I was at school, you know, in the summer vacations and in the Easter holidays, Christmas holidays. Like what? I worked in a paint factory. Um in um, factory canteens, preparing food for the workers. Uh, I actually had a really cool job. I worked in a record shop. I worked in clothes. I worked in retail. I mean, but the worst job was the paint factory. Um, that was bad. What did you have to do? Well, it was a paint box. Remember the watercolours that you put, you know, all the different colours are in a tray? Yeah. Well, basically, we had rolls of these colours and we'd have to break off a piece and put them in their respective places and then it was a conveyor belt it was a you know a a line an assembly line right and you start off with two colors and you work your way up to six and literally that's all you do you just like colors put them in colors put them in pass it on colors I mean it was mind-numbing and people did this for a living but once I started acting I was working at pineapple which it seems to be my life to be in the center of the universe at any given time because when I was at pineapple it was flash dance era. Everyone was wearing dance clothes as clothes, and I was there. So it was. It's always been like interesting to me that I've always kind of been at the hub of the universe as far as fashion and um, trends go. You know, it's been weird in my life. All my horrible jobs in my life were before I, you know, finished my studies. Right. But it, there were some horrible jobs on the way up. I'm. Uh, and I remember because with first that first year when you and I made the walk, we, we did the walk. And I remember you took a tumble, but you had these beautiful clothes on that were sort of these flowy. One was lavender and one was pink, I think. And I think you gave me the lavender one because you said, yeah, I, I have many of these. I got them at Pineapple when I worked there or something. And they were so beautiful and I just loved it. It was great. Yeah, it was a cool place I heard. I never saw it. Yeah, I know. It was it was brilliant. It was brilliant because we met, and that's the thing about working where it's fashion, where the, the, the center of fashion is to be at Pineapple in Covent Garden. You know that was kind of awesome. Um, but I I was I met so many people because they came into the store. You know, it's, I I met loads. Of, I mean, I knew Jane Leaves because she was a dancer. Uh, I knew Fiona. Um, Fiona from General Hospital, what's her name? Oh, you know who I'm talking about. Anyway, because menopause is untellable things to my brain. But I met all these brilliant people because they used to come into pineapple. Hey, did you ever watch that Wanda Sykes special I texted you? I did. Her thing about menopause is so freaking funny. Oh, my gosh. Gatesy. Right, right. I've been telling everyone to watch that. I literally, at some points in that stand-up, I literally could not laugh loud enough to express how funny I, know. I thought it was. She was brilliant. Well, you never texted me back that you saw it. I was like, oh, oh have she seen it yet? I didn't realize. I didn't realize it was a homework that I had to do a report. A no, report no, no. <laughs> I just wanted to know if you saw it because I just laughed so hard. Oh my God, oh, I, I thought it was brilliant. And you know what? Serendipitously, if there is such a word, um, there I, is. <laughs> there is. Okay. Serendipitously, uh, I watched it the day the day after sent it, or the day after you sent it, because um, Puka, my thirty year old dog, um, had had some kind of seizure. Oh God! 
And I was absolutely freaking out. I was like an inch away from, you know, calling the vet to put her down. And I was literally, I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, I was literally, you know, like most Greek women, old Greek women, the closer I get to death, the more religious I'm getting. So I'm calling out to the Lord. I'm I'm like, Lord, I know you won't send me more than I can handle. But really? The dog as well? The dog is going to die on the same day that Michael died? Really? You know, I mean, I was losing my mind. And so that night, I watched Wanda Sykes and it was exactly what I needed. So thank you, Gatesy. Oh, good. Thank you. Saved my life that day, actually. Thank you, Wanda. I was thinking about it because last year, Christmas, you were at my place. And I mean, it's been one hell of a year for you. But I have to say, honestly, honestly, you you are uh, amazing at how you have dealt with all the, the grief that's happened in your life. Well, I realized during my grief, I realized that I have pretended to be strong for so long. Because, you know, mm. we're actors. We're not really strong. We pretend to be strong. We're, we're in massive insecurities, as you know. Um, but I have I've pretended to be strong and self-reliant for so long that I have become it. I've become mm. it. I've become strong. And I know now that I'm strong. I don't have to pretend or act it anymore because I became strong. And, yes, I've had yeah. a horrible yeah. year. I've had a horrible year. It's been probably yeah. the worst, well, not definitely the worst year of my life. But when I think, okay, I lost my husband. Um, I didn't have to, you know, watch him get COVID. He had a heart attack, you know, so it wasn't like I had to, you know, put him in the hospital and look at him through, you know, the window. Um, But I have to be honest, because I am so blessed compared to other people at this moment in time that I really don't feel I can complain. People are struggling. Um, Yeah. I, I think for young people, it's been so devastating because if I had not been able to have connections with my friends and to, or just the world, to be stuck at home with your parents and having to just learn on a computer and all of that, it's so brutal what so many people have gone through, plus the anxiety of the election. I mean, it's been such a year of anxiety, let's face it. Yeah, um, yeah. We have had time to think about things for people like us to also think about things and appreciate the good that's happened in our life, like you said, and and to connect with friends in ways that we're still able to do and sort of reassess what we want to do. I mean, you've made some big decisions about where you're going to go forward from now and you're going to you're going to go back to London. That's a big decision. And that's and it, it makes sense in the context of everything, you know. Talk about that a little bit. You're going to... What about me going back to London? Yeah. Are you excited about it or are you... How are you feeling? Well, I'm very... You know what? I'm very excited about it. I mean, I don't want to... You know, people are going to say, oh, look, you know, she made her money in America and now she's bailing. And it isn't that at all. It's, you know, I'm a 65-year-old actress in Hollywood. Gatesy, that means we don't work, right? Pretty much. So when my manager and my agent start, you know, oh, why, you know, why, why you want to go? Why do you want to go? And I'm like, well, I'd like to go to a country where I don't have to audition. You understand that, right? Because now everything is a self-tape. I have never booked a job from a self-tape ever. Mm. And I don't know how many I've done. I've never booked one. So in England, it's on a stamp, for goodness sake. 
All my work in the last two years, apart from Picard, has come from the UK. So it just makes sense for me to go back there. It also, because I'm a big fish in a small pond over there, right? I'm, here I'm the opposite. Um, also, I lost my husband. There's too many memories, you know. I want to go where there aren't memories of him. Um, and also, I want to go with my people, you know, my, my English friends who are still my best friends in the world because I've known some of them for 50 years or, or more. Um, and I would love to go and see my Spurs and not just watch them on the telly, you know. I, you know, there's so many things that uh, I've missed. And I think like most first-generation people, I mean, I'm first-generation British, English. We're far more patriotic than my English friends. I remember, like, like you said, in the World Cup, I was way more patriotic for England than any of my, you know, English, English friends who had English parents, because I think when you're first generation, you really glom onto the country to give you some identity because your parents' identity is totally different. So, in fact, I never called myself Greek until I came to America. I was English, and suddenly I arrive at LAX, and all of a sudden, I'm Greek. And I say, no, I'm not. I'm English. No, you're not. You're Greek because your parents are Greek. And I'm like, well, I was born and raised in England. I've spent maybe six months of my life in Greece out of 65 years. How am I Greek? But because you, this is my theory, it's America's such a young country that you you're still, America's still searching for its identity on a certain level. And so that, um, if you're born in a prison, it's the prison that you remember, meaning the place where you were born is where your heart always is. I, I know that for the, the, just the two and a half years that I was living in, in Paris when I was in my like 19 and 20, 21 years old, I suddenly did, understood what it was to be American. And I, I had been fighting so many things against Nixon and the government and the, the, I was reading Angela Davis and listening to Abby Hoffman. And suddenly I was just so nostalgic for anything like be it peanut butter. You know, I was just like, Oh, because you're away from it. And you actually understand, you learn what it is to be either English or American, whatever country you're from, because also people are defining you and you're in this new country and people define you as, Oh, you're this, you're that. And you're going, well, no, I'm actually not, you know, I mean, I'm one of the, Americans. There's like quite a few Americans, you know, I'm just one person. And, but you start to miss the things that are good about this country, the things that really make this country special. And that I think is a good lesson to learn. And there's this woman, Lori Gottlieb, who's a psychotherapist and she, she, um, has this book called Maybe You Should Talk to Somebody. That's one of her books. And and she talks about how we, we give ourselves this narrative. And sometimes, you know, we have to look at why we give ourselves a certain narrative. And we can change the narrative. And how do we do that? And I find all that super interesting because, I mean, having this time during COVID has given me, as I said, time to sort of look at yourself and what are the things that are my patterns and what are the things that I... Uh, you know, where where do I get defensive? Where am I open and vulnerable? What Where am I learning? And I, I want to try to figure out how to be more tolerant and patient and talk to people who really I disagree with intensely, but how can I kind of 
find some way of communicating. Here we are. We can only talk on Zoom. It's hard to, I mean, you've come over to the house. We've sat outside in the patio. We can do that, but we still can't hug or we can't, you know, really hang out and, and, and do it in the way that we're used to. And, and it's harder. If, if you were going to revise your narrative, your, your story, I mean, is there anything that you could think of that you would do? We're talking about oh. the way you approach things in life. Well, I would, um, well, you know, Liz, I wish, I wish I had a filter. I wish I had a filter. Um, I do. I really do. Cause it gets me in so much trouble that I don't have a filter. And what is really bizarre, it's like, and I suddenly realized this uh, a couple of years ago, actually. And it, um, I said to my mother her whole life, would you think before you speak? And then she passed away like 15 years ago. And gradually I started channeling her. And I don't think before I speak anymore. And I don't know whether that's age. I don't know whether I don't know whether it's something to do with age. And as you get older, your brain goes a bit off. I literally words come out of my mouth and and then I go, oh no, I should not have said that. But it, it's like I, it, they, I just go. And I would really like but to change you, that about myself. Well, with time, I'm sure you will. I, I'm much too frank. I, I can come off as being much more judgmental than I even feel. It's something about my defensiveness. My defensiveness will make me sound a certain way that I don't even, that's not, you know, I'm like, where did that come from? It's not really how I feel. But I think right. we have patterns that if you watch your mother your whole life, it, it's pretty tough not to start to do some of the patterns. I think yeah. it's less about our age than I think we have to actively try to be open and actively change our narratives, like actively say, okay, I'm going to try to do this today and not not get defensive or not get scared. Amazing to me, some of the things that drive me crazy about myself I, you know, you still have to kind of untease the knot and figure out where the heck does that come from? Because it's not really how I feel, but it's what I seem to give people the impression of. You know what I mean? You see, I don't get defensive. No, I don't. Yeah, you do get defensive. I get aggressive. You see, I'm, the, I'm very aggressive and come off very aggressive and um, nasty sometimes, you know, uh, and that's something that I don't like about myself. Um, so, like I said, I wish that, you know, I had a filter between my brain and my mouth. I don't know. I don't know have what you it looked, is. Have um, you looked online? Because there might be some that are available. <laughs> Do they sell them on Amazon? Do they sell brain filters on Amazon? I think they might. Well, the problem is I'm funny as well. You know, I, you know, I get away with it. And I shouldn't. And my friends let me get away with it. And you shouldn't because I'm horrible. Yeah. I mean, I remember once I was in an elevator with LeVar and I said something. I think there was this Russian dude uh, with his little girl. And this Russian dude had really, really, really tight, crinkly, curly, frizzy hair. And his little girl had gorgeous hair like you. Hair, like supermodel hair and I looked at him and I looked at her and I just went oh thank god she doesn't have your hair oh, why? oh my god <laughs> why <laughs> why did I say that to him he looked at me I said and then of course I started digging the hole even deeper because I'm oh you know because I've got curly hair so I know what it's like and if she had right, curly right, hair right, right. she'd be <laughs> you know all that and he and, and he got off and Lovato goes 
you are horrible. <laughs> yeah, but I'm funny, aren't I? And he went, yeah, and that's the only reason no one's killed you yet. You know, right. it's like this stuff comes out of my mouth. Right. Now that I want to, that's something I want to talk to you about. I think I was in Hawaii or something doing marker when you were trying to do stand up. I want to know. So talk oh, me through gee. the, the stand ups that you did. Because, I mean, first of all, bravo for having the courage to try to do that because that's got to be one of the scariest things in the Terrifying. world to do and the hardest. Okay. Yeah, of course. Um, talk to me about what was that process? Okay. Like, and, and how did it feel? Because I, I truly, really want to know like more blow by blow. So you get up. You you go out. Where was the first gig? Well, my first gig was was you know evening at the Improv, hosting an evening at the Improv. Oh, hosting! You were hosting. You have to be funny yourself, but you introduce other comics, right? No, no. You do a bit. You have to do five minutes at the beginning of your own comedy. Oh Jesus! Oh my God! Um, but but what but what you do is you get together with the writers and you kind of do a little interview and they and you you know you say you know any funny stories from your life and. And then they come up with stuff and you come up with stuff and, and and that's what you do. And, you know, my comedy was always based on, like most stand-ups, it's based on you and your foibles at, well, you know, the good stuff. I don't want to take the piss out of anybody else. I like taking the piss out of myself um, because I think then, you know, it's it's real. It's And, and your experiences are not going to be just for you, other people are going to have the same experiences and relate to what you're saying. Right. I mean, like Wanda Sykes and the menopause. So you got up. Do you remember what the first bits you said were? I remember the first joke. I remember the first joke. I, I said um, something like, um, you know, I'm English and I'm Greek, which is kind of a little confusing because in, in restaurants, in Greek restaurants, when they start playing the music, I jump up on the table and just stand there, you know, because of the English part. So, <laughs> so, so when did you when did you sort of go? Okay, I think this is not going to work for me. I mean, how many times did you keep trying? No, no, I knew it was never. I, I did it a couple of times. It, to be honest, Gacy, I've never been so terrified in my. I mean, literally nauseous. Yeah. Now, and I've never understood why people continue to do something that makes them feel so bad. I've worked with actors, I don't know if you have, who are literally so nervous that they're throwing up before they go on stage, right? Or live stage, not TV. And I, and I always think, maybe you should find another career. If you're throwing, if you're so scared that you're throwing up, yeah, but I, I, I feel this way. Like I've had times where I've been so nervous that I've, I've just about been throwing up and really it's just excruciating. But what happens is because of the rehearsal process, you walk on stage, you say your first line and it's it's you're in the character. Whereas it's different if you're at a convention or you're speaking or something. I get more nervous when I have to be something that supposedly is closer to myself. But actually, I know that all of us have personas that we're doing. And it's sort of very confusing to me, whereas I like it when it's a role. Like for me, I love comedy, but my comedy is more within a character. I wish I had seen you do your English panto because... I can think of nobody who would be better at it than you, frankly. I wish we had that here. I would love uh -oh. to do Panto. They do. The Lithgow family here, um, Nigel Lithgow, who used to be Nigel Lithgow's son, Chris, who's a good friend of mine. Um, he does a, this is the first year they haven't done a Panto in Los Angeles for about six, yes, seven years. Aww. So I'm going to tell them, Gatesy, that you want to do a panto. I think they're great. Because I'm going to be back in England doing panto in England and you can take my role as the Wicked Witch. 
I mean, I think they are so great. I think it's the, something you bring the whole family to. Everybody has a blast. You know, I saw the first one I ever saw was when I was working with Edward Petherbridge, and he took me to the panto he was doing. He was playing in the Peter Pan. It was the real, um, the really long play version. You know, it wasn't like the Broadway kind of Peter Pan. It was so right. beautiful, and he played the narrator, and I just fell in love with the whole thing. It had every element of theater that I adore. Now, wait a minute. Now, a proper panto has audience participation. So was there any, he's behind you? Totally. Yes, there was all of okay. that and the Tinkerbell and it's so brilliant. And by the way, I do expect you once you get over there, I would like you to send me a couple of letters with your face on the envelope. OK, I just I, I want to see the stamps with my stamps. I mean, it's so cool. It's so cool. They sent me a big one. They sent me like a, a, a like a <laughs> two foot square stamp. They want me to they wanted me the, the Royal Mail wanted to take me to take a picture with it and to send it to them and to, and to give them a little blurb. And I thought, you know what? I'm not even going to try and be funny. This is such a such an honour. It's cool. It is. Growing up in North London, I never in a million years imagined that my face would be on a stamp. My face and the Queen on the same stamp. What what, what would you say to to an 11 year old English Greek girl in? Uh, London, and she writes you a letter and she wants advice. Well, can you give me some advice of what would you say to her? Oh, geez. Um, okay. Well, if you don't want to be an actor, which, you know, after everyone told us, well, not your family, but, you know, everyone told us no growing up not to be actors. Um, so if you don't want to be an actor, uh, my advice would be go to university uh, if you want to leave, the only way for a Greek girl, to, I mean, not boys, boys are, you know, boys, are, you know, boys are boys. Yeah. And the difference is, let's just explain why it's different for boys and for girls in Greek communities. It's because girls can get pregnant and boys can't, you know, and that is the bottom line of it all. So um, that's why boys are allowed out and girls aren't. So if you're a Greek girl with strict parents in England, You've got to study and go to university because that's the only way your parents are going to let you leave home. And once you're gone, you're gone. You don't have to go back. But, you know, Greek parents, they do that whole... I mean, I remember when I wanted to leave home when I was at drama school and I got the whole, it's going to kill your mother. She'll go up the stairs to that bedroom and she'll see it empty. It'll kill her. I mean, the emotional blackmail. I mean, Greeks have it down there. They got it. And so, you know, they just pile on the guilt. But do you think you would have done that had you had kids? Do you think you would have done the same thing? No, I mean, first of all, I knew I was never going to have kids. But if I had had kids by accident, um, I wouldn't have been strict with them like my mother was with me. I mean, I mean, that was what, to be honest, that was the biggest bugbear. That was the biggest problem I had with my mother was that her life was so horrible, so awful, you know, really, um, that why didn't she want my life to be better? But she didn't. She wanted my life to be the same as hers because misery loves company, right? All these old cliches are based in truth or in Shakespeare, one of the two, you know, so. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, no, absolutely. That That's really interesting. And it's so unfortunate when when parents do that to their kids because it's, it's just destructive. This year has been uh, quite a chapter in in our, all of our stories, particularly yours. If you were going to write the first 
and last sentence of the chapter of this year, your book. This is chapter 2020. Give me a starting sentence of where it started in January and where are you now where we're almost at the end of December. Okay. Okay. I'm going to steal from Dickens for the first line and, <laughs> and change it a little bit. It was the worst of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> nice one. Nice one. There was no best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the worst of times. And the last sentence will be, and I've really, really, I've kind of become it. I've become a motto. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And that has been like it. That's been written on my forehead all, all year because, um, geez, we, you know, we, the, and the other thing we have to do, and I really want to say this because, I, you know, we, we hear from a lot of people, Gatesy, you know, we do it in, in, in our lives, um, people we know, people we don't know from, you know, some of the work that we do. Um, but I really, I really do feel that, you know, we had to be locked in our homes to realise that, well, you know, or maybe realise that owning a Gucci purse really isn't that important in the grand scheme of things, right? Exactly. Um, what, what is really important is how we, is, is how we are. What it's shown to me as well, I hate to say this, but it's absolutely true, and you're included in this, by the way, Gatesy, before I say it, it showed me who my friends are, who my true friends are. I love them. I value them. They've come through. I'm making myself cry now. They've come through for me. <laughs> they've been there for me. Um, you know, it's just been. It's the most um, wonderful thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. They've really come through for me. Yeah. And you're easy to come through for, I will say. I do think, I think for me, I started the year saying, well, I hope things are turning around for me in a good way. And now I feel I've done kind of some hard labor, both physically in the garden with a pickaxe and also I've seen the, planting. the results are fabulous. Well, thank you. But I mean, I think for me, that's part of how I do things. You know, I'm dealing with the internal, but I get physical doing something. I'm very into aesthetics. And I feel if I can work on some of my the physical aesthetics around me, like the plants, and I can see something peek out from the ground that's, that's you know, something I don't know. It's like a metaphor for trying to find things in myself that I don't know, but it's time to get to know those things. It's time to open up to new possibilities. So that's kind of why I'm doing this podcast, I guess. Um, and it's, it, you know. I think it's great. I want you to come down to my place in France, and then I want us to go from France. We're going to go to Greece. To and Greece. You're going to show me Greece. To Greece. All right, babe. Uh, you hear yeah. it, everybody. This is, the, all right, promise. I Absolutely. want to do this. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a deal. Right. That is definitely on. We'll go from, we'll go from France. We'll stop off in Athens, do the sites for a couple of days, and then we'll go to an island. Yes, yes, we will. We will create our own Delphic Oracle. Well, there you um, go. Marina, as I've said to every one of my castmates who I've spoken to, and I will say absolutely with love in my heart to you, I love you. Thank you. I love you too, Daisy. This has been awesome. I'm looking forward to our trip to France and Greece. 
I really hope she does jump up on the table in a Greek restaurant. I'd love it. I'll let you know. Meantime, thanks for listening to Investigates. Be well and stay safe.